Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. The following is a speech by Robert Kelly, General Counsel for the Convention of States organization and given at the 2019 Convention of States Leadership Summit. The talk is titled, The Law of Article 5. So tonight, as you know from your programs, we were supposed to have Rob Nadelson with us. Rob's one of my heroes. Uh, he's the primary scholar in the world on Article 5, uh, and he's written more about it than anybody, studied more about it than anybody in the country. And unfortunately, Rob has a personal family tragedy going on right now. We got a text from Rob or an email two days ago, and he got notice from Montana uh, that his mom is on death's doorstep. And so Rob is with her, as any good son should be. Uh, just a brief thing about the character of Rob Nadelson and, and who Rob is, because I think this is important. It's, it's important. Character is important to our organization. Uh, you know, George Washington said it's good to have few friends and choose them carefully, right? Better to have no friends than bad friends. Rob's a good friend personally and a good friend of the organization. And, and the character of the man is demonstrated by his willingness to be in the fight and his willingness to be there for his mom, no matter what. And uh, I got an email from him. We got a few of us got an email from him. Uh, yesterday, I think it was, and he said it's really good that he went there, that she's definitely going to pass here in the next few days, and that he was by her bedside reading her the children's stories that she used to read to him. So here's a guy, yeah, it's incredible. Here's a guy that's an, a nationally known scholar, a constitutional litigator, a, a powerful person, and his mom is the priority, and that's the way it should be. So please keep Rob in your prayers. I know he would appreciate that. I will pass them along to him. Uh, filling in for Rob tonight is uh, another person that I think is a nationally, national level attorney. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of attorneys over the years, uh, specifically in the last 10 years, nonprofit attorneys. It's a weird area of the law when you have to deal with nonprofits. There's all kinds of government relations stuff you have to understand. You have to look at compliance. You're always worried about getting in trouble. And uh, in our case, you have to worry about keeping me out of trouble. That's a very big job. I think it could give anybody heartburn. Uh, now imagine that you're hired as an attorney for an organization uh, that's a fledgling organization six years ago, and you were hired straight out of law school before you get your bar results. So the guy that I'm talking about, this is his situation. He, he was a student at Patrick Henry College, so he was a protege of Mike Ferris's. That puts him way up there in the first place, in my opinion. Uh, he was a national level moot court champion. A guy competed at the very highest levels. He was recommended very highly to me by Mike Ferris, who was hired as one of the very first employees in Convention of States. Uh, you know, there's a, a couple left that came from the very beginning that were with us when we opened the first office when this thing started six years ago. He was a very young guy, still young, but he was very young and he got thrown into an incredibly difficult environment. Uh, an organization that started with the wildfire of Mark Levin's book, we exploded, we went from zero to tens of thousands of people overnight. Uh, Robert had no idea what he was doing. And it was, for me, an experiment in repeating my own history, to be honest with you. Because when I was a young attorney, I had the privilege of being hired by a big real estate developer to be general counsel. I think I was 26 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And the only reason they hired me was because they wanted a general counsel on the payroll. They're a billion-dollar developer. They don't want to pay for a general counsel. But they wanted somebody who could sign general counsel. And I got put on the payroll. I had no idea what I was doing. It was completely terrifying. I was underwater every single day. I felt like I was drowning. I would go home and have nightmares about all the malpractice I was probably committing. <laughs> but I had a boss who said, you can hire outside counsel all you want. And I said, I'm going to hire a lot so I don't commit malpractice, right? And I hired the best boutique law firm in Southern California at the time, and they mentored me for a year solid. I didn't really commit malpractice. I didn't get in any big trouble, and I learned a lot. And within a couple of years, I was a top-notch real estate attorney. You can't do that, right? You can't just go into a firm and get that kind of experience. And so when, when Robert came to us, I took that lesson that I had learned, that, that gift that had been given to me, and I passed it on. And I said, we're going to hire as much outside counsel as you need. We're going to get the best in the country. We did. We hired some of the best nonprofit attorneys out of Washington, D.C. And I, I would put Robert against any nonprofit in attorney, in Amer uh, attorney in America at this point. He's that good. This is incredible. I, I loan him out to give advice to other nonprofits and their staffs. He's that good. So I think that's really important legal stuff that I can tell you about Robert. It's not the most important stuff. 
the most important stuff is who he is as a human being. This is what I think about my whole staff, about our whole staff, about this whole organization. I care about your qualifications. I care about how hard you work. I care about your commitment, your dedication, your willingness to sacrifice, but I care more about the kind of human being you are. Robert is the kind of guy that would and does work in the, in the special needs ministry at his church. A single guy, you don't see many single guys, in my opinion, willing to commit themselves in that way. This is a guy who takes vacation time from work to go work at the church camp to minister to teenagers, right? This is not average in America today. This is extraordinary. And that is why it is my honor and privilege to employ him, to have him always have my back and have him looking out for me. It's my honor to introduce you to my good friend and my general counsel, Robert Kelly. Wow, well, I have no idea how I can possibly live up to that introduction. Um, I do want to thank Rita for scheduling me for the plenary session. Well, Rob, really, but me on the substitute plenary session right after Pete Hegseth, because, I mean, who could possibly live up to that? So, you know, I, I, yeah, thank you. I know I'm not even going to try, but um, thank, you, thank you for doing that, Rita. I am grateful, though, that we had a little bit of a break between that session and this one. First, because... Well, I get a little bit more of a, you know, you all have a chance to go grab lunch and get a little bit of a letdown from that huge high that Pete gave us coming off of that speech. But second, and more importantly, I actually got to go back and take off my old man socks and put on the nice fancy socks now. So, so thank you. Um, I really wish Rob Nadelson could be with us here today. He is the top expert in the country on Article 5 of the Constitution. And it's really because of the scholarship that he has done that we know so much about the Article 5 process. This movement is really owing to the intellectual groundwork that he has laid and that he put in numerous hours doing painstaking research just going through the old documents, realizing that the research had not been there, and that so many people had looked at Article 5 and just dismissed it out of hand, had never actually bothered to do the persistent, tough legwork of actually digging through the historical documents that are there. And Rob, like the real academic that he is, like the honest man that he is, he realized that, and he actually, this may be something most of you don't know about him, he started out, when he was researching the Article 5 process, he started out as a skeptic. He thought, like most people thought at the time, that no, there was, this was going to run away. This was going to be a runaway convention, that there just weren't enough checks and balances on this process to use it safely. And what he realized is, as he went back, as he looked at the historical documents, not only was this a safe process that the founders had built numerous checks and balances in, but this was also a core part of the Constitution's balance of powers, and that to not use it was to abdicate one of the most important checks on our system of government. And as Rob would tell you here today, there are far more checks on a runaway convention than there are on a runaway Congress, which is what we're dealing with today. So that's what I want to talk about. I actually want to pick up where David Barton left off and talk about the law of Article 5, what those checks and balances are in Article 5, and more importantly, how Article 5 fits into the broader constitutional structure that we have. And I would submit to all of you here today that the real genius of our Constitution is not the Bill of Rights. It's not the rights, the substantive rights that were guaranteed in the Constitution. It's actually the procedural checks and balances that are in the Constitution. And you actually heard Lori in the video mention just that. She quoted James Madison, right? And he said, the very definition of tyranny is when you have the executive, the judicial, and the legislative powers all in a single branch, all in a, concentrated in a single entity. And note what that says, right? That's a procedural statement, right? He, James Madison wasn't talking about, oh, it's tyranny when the federal government comes in and takes your guns. Or it's not tyranny, it's, he wasn't saying that it's tyranny when the federal government comes in and takes away your right to free speech. It's tyranny when you don't have those checks and balances, those procedural checks there to ensure those rights to you. And that's why the Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights in the original document, right? James Madison would have called it a parchment barrier. That's the famous phrase he used in the Federalist Papers, right? Parchment barriers. He believed it was far more important that you actually have the procedures in place to check the government. And one of those core procedures, one of those core checks and balances is in Article 5. And let me illustrate that to you, right? So hopefully you're all familiar a little bit with the text of Article 5, right? What does it say? 
There are two ways to propose amendments to the Constitution of the United States, and there are two ways to ratify those amendments. Now, I'll tell you what, I am not a math major, but I can do that. I can do two times two, that's four. So four possible ways that the amendment process can be used in Article 5 of the Constitution. We've used two of them. We've used two of them, two out of the four. So let's go through those just in order and look at what each of those options are for amending the Constitution and ratifying amendments. And I think you'll see that our founders built into the very design of Article 5 that idea of checks and balances, that no part of our government should be the final arbiter of its own power, right? That's what James Madison said tyranny was. And I hope I'm not stealing his thunder because I hear he's up next on the agenda. So hopefully he can come in and he can correct me if I misquote him here. But, uh, but that's, that's what tyranny is, right? Tyranny is when you don't have those checks and balances. Tyranny is when any part of the government, any person in the government gets the final say on their own power. And you'll see, you look at Article 5, it's the exact same way. No part of the government gets the final say on their own power. So two ways to propose amendments. First way, the way we all learn in high school civics, the way all 27 of our amendments have been proposed so far, is Congress, by a two-thirds vote, can propose amendments to the Constitution. Right? We're all familiar with that, hopefully. The second method, though, is the one that we're all here meeting and talking about. Right? It's that the state legislatures can propose amendments to the Constitution. And note what that allows you to do, right? Let's say Congress is the problem, right? Congress has too much power. Well, that means the people can use the instrument of their state legislatures to propose amendments, and Congress can't stop them from doing proposals. Same deal, think about it the other way around, right? What if the state legislatures are the problem? What if the state government actually becomes tyrannous? Now, that's kind of hard for us to imagine in a society like ours right now, where the state governments are dwarfed by our overwhelming federal government, but that wasn't something that the founders didn't contemplate, right? Remember that the Articles of Confederation failed because the state governments were actually too powerful and the federal government was not powerful enough. So they knew you had to have checks both ways. So if the state governments become the problem, then you need to be able to go to Congress. The people can go to their representatives in Congress, bypass the state governments, and get amendments, right? No branch of government can stop that process. Well, then look at ratification, right? Two ways to get ratification. First method of ratification is that Congress can send the amendments back to state legislatures for ratification. So the states can ratify. Or the second method, Congress can send the amendments back to the American people back to state ratification conventions, which are designed to represent the American people more directly, right? And it's Congress, keep in mind here, Congress is the body that gets to make that decision. So think that through, right? Think that through all the way through the process. So what if the state legislatures, what if the state governments are the problem? Well, then the people can go to Congress, get amendments proposed, and then Congress gets to decide where those amendments go back. It can send those amendments back to the people for ratification. The state legislatures do not get the final say on their own power. The state governments do not get the final say on their own power. Checks and balances. And look at it the other way, right? An overpowering Congress, right? A Congress, a federal government that's exercising too much power. The state legislatures, the people can go to their state legislatures to get needed amendments. Then those state legislatures send those amendments. Congress gets to choose the method of ratification, does not get to choose whether to send them out for ratification, that it gets to send those amendments either back to the state legislatures for ratification or to the American people. Congress cannot stop amendments, right? That's the design of our Constitution. So if the federal government gets too large, there are checks and balances in Article 5 to prevent that. If the state governments get too large, there are checks and balances in Article 5 to prevent that. That's the whole genius of the system that our founders, and note the symmetry, right? Note how they built that in to the process that we have. So how did we get where we are? Our founders built checks and balances into the system. They gave the states two primary checks on the power of the federal government. One of those is Article 5 with the convention pr procedure, right, which we all know the states haven't used. So states have not used that first check that they've been given. Second check that they were given was the ability to elect U.S. Senators. So they were given the ability. They had control over the U.S. Senate. Well, back in 1913, we adopted the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which took away that power. Ever since 1913, the state legislatures have not been electing the Senate. It's gone back to the people directly within the states. 
So both, both of those two checks have not been used in the last hundred years. Think about that. We have a federal government that has not had a substantive check on its power in over a hundred years. It's actually a miracle things aren't worse off than they are. It's a testimony to the heritage that the founders left us. It's a testimony to the spirit of self-governance in the American people that things are not worse off than they are, right? Because that's, that's the testimony of all of human history. That's why the founders believed so strongly in checks and balances, because they knew power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the federal government has had pretty darn near absolute power for the last hundred years. So that's a procedural problem, right? That's a procedural problem. And it's really critical that we diagnose the problem correctly because we're not gonna select the right solution for the problem if we don't understand what the problem is. I have a cousin who loves to uh, basically rebuild BMWs for fun. Um, and he'll tell you I'm not a car guy. I, I know nothing, I have a great mechanic who I trust and I just, I just listen to what his recommendations are. Um, but I do know this difference. I understand the difference between a gas gauge and the check engine light on my car. <laughs> right, gas gauge goes out, I know I've gotta go, go over to the gas station, I gotta fuel up my car, right? That'll fix that problem. Check engine light comes on, that's telling me there's something structurally wrong with my car. I can go down to the gas station, I can put the fanciest fuel in it, it's not gonna fix the check engine light on my car. I think it's the same deal with our Constitution. For a long time, we've been pumping really fancy fuel into the system, and it's not making a difference. And that's because we're mistaking the check engine light for the fuel gauge. We have a structural problem, and funneling good people, funneling good fuel into a system that is broken is not going to produce good results. You have to address the underlying problem if you want a workable solution. So thank you all for having me here. I think Rita has a few questions that we're going to do, and I'd love to take questions from the audience and get into the nitty-gritty of how Article 5 of our Constitution works. Pull up the chair. All right. Thank you, Mark. So uh, how was that? Pretty good for a young guy, don't you think? <laughs> Pretty good for an old guy. <laughs> you can see why I have so much faith in my staff and in the legal team, and it's really important, honestly, because we're way at risk, right? We're out there kind of walking the plank every day, and there are plenty of people who would like to take us down as an organization, as individuals. We get attacked all the time. If it were not for Robert behind the scenes making sure that everything is clean and runs well, then we'd be in a lot of trouble. So you can see why I have so much faith. And I hope that helps to give you faith in the organization and how soundly we're run. It gives me a lot of faith. So the next person I want to bring up also gives me a lot of faith. I think I owe quite a bit to Mike Ferris. You know, I told you that uh, Robert was a protege of Mike Ferris's. He, he brought him into the organization told me that this was somebody I could rely upon. That's absolutely turned out to be true. So somebody else that, uh, that Mike brought into the organization with him is, uh, is the next person I want to introduce. And I knew nothing about her. I just knew that Mike said, hey, I need a brilliant lawyer to work with me. I need somebody who is incredibly smart, incredibly sharp, very ethical, somebody I can absolutely trust to work side by side with me if we're going to start this project. And I said, yeah, you get whoever you want. You bring in whoever you want. So Mike could have chosen anybody he wanted. And this is the person he chose. I had no, like I said, I didn't know her. I had no idea why he chose her. I, I really didn't know her background. I kind of looked at what she had done. Uh, she worked at a place called the Rutherford Institute. She filed amicus briefs before the United States Supreme Court. Now that I know her, she probably drafted them while she was cooking for her kids <laughs> and attending a soccer game. Because <laughs> that's just how she is. Uh, she is an incredibly talented lawyer. She has one of the sharpest legal minds, analytical minds of anybody I've ever met in my life. Um, she just, she actually produces literally more work than any human being I've ever met in my life. There's certain people you meet in your life, Patty and I call them producers, right? It's just, it doesn't matter how much work you give them. It doesn't matter what you ask them to do. You can know with absolute certainty they will get it done. They will move heaven and earth. They will stay up all night, although she will tell you that she turns into a pumpkin at 9 p.m. I think she's working all night long and just kidding us because they literally just get it done. And, and Rita is somebody who just gets it done no matter what. I'll tell you a quick story before I bring her up. Uh, when we were planning this conference, you guys probably can figure a conference like this. There's a few details that have to be worked out, right? 
So about uh, 90 days ago, maybe, or so, I had a bad feeling about our preparation for this conference. Uh, Mike Ruthenberg was helping me put it together. I was working on it. We had some staff in Mike's office was working on it. And Mike and I just started sensing that the wheels were coming off the bus. And we both are running a million things, and we had somebody helping us run this project. We just were getting the sniffer up that it was not right. right? And when we started to dig in, it was much worse. <laughs> <laughs> It was very bad. <laughs> and we were about 90 days out from this thing. And I said to Mike, okay, we need Superwoman. And I said, I'm, I, we got to turn this over to her. We got we to gotta call Rita and uh, we got to pull the person who's on it off of it. They were just over their heads and, and we got to put somebody on it that can handle it. Now, what you have to understand about Rita Dunaway is her specific job title is she's our senior vice president uh, of legislative strategy. So this is what she does. She handles all of our legislative strategy nationally. If, if it's going on in your state, Rita knows about it, right? If the legislature is doing something in your state, Rita probably knows about it almost as quickly as you do. She's on top of what you guys are doing, any lobbyists that the organization works with. I mean, she's got her hands in all of it. Everything's on a spreadsheet, everything's detailed. Uh, I can ask her any question about anything in the country and then she took over event planning. <laughs> so this says two things about Rita that I think are really important. One is she's just incredibly talented. There's nothing that I could ask her to do that she couldn't do. And I mean nothing. I, I just can't imagine a task that she couldn't do. Number two is that she's willing to do anything. This is another trait that I value incredibly highly in this organization. I hope you guys mirror this and mimic this in your state organizations, which is your job is everything. You know, if you're, if you're, <laughs> that's for real. If you're the legislative liaison and you see something going on in media that's a problem, do you just say, hey, that's not my job. I don't know about that. No, you intervene, you deal with it, you help in however you can, right? And so no matter what your job is, if, if you're a person who handles finance in our organization, you see something wrong in the legal department, you help, you jump in. In fact, the biggest problem I have in the organization, nobody ever says it's not my job. It's like, hey, why are you helping that person? Well, they needed help, right? Aren't you busy enough? Yes, I'm very busy, but they needed help. Everybody in our organization helps everybody. That's why Rita took over the planning of this country before I even bring her up. Do you like what's going on here? Thank Rita. That's not an overstatement. She rescued us. And then the second thing I talked about, you know, the most important thing to me is not how smart people are, not how, what great work they do, not what kind of performers they are, but who they are as people. The most important thing I think you could know about Rita is her family. Rita has an amazing family. She's got an incredible, wonderful husband, Scott, who's an incredible dentist, dedicated to the kids. Her daughter, Madeline, is like a professional level tennis player. As a freshman in high school, she's dominating. And Rita's at all of the matches. Uh, her son is a very talented soccer goalkeeper, unique position, really great kid, incredibly smart, wins the geography be at his school. And Rita's at all the geography matches. She's at all of the soccer games. Rita works part-time for us and does all of this stuff part-time, although I have to say, <laughs> Part-time in Rita's case might be 60 hours a week. <laughs> I'm just saying. But she's such a dedicated mom. And, and one of the things that happened when she first started is she told us, look, number one for me is my family. Like, I'll work for you. I'm happy to work for you. I'll work as hard as I can, I'll commit as much as I can. But my family comes first. And in this organization, that's something we honor. And when people have family issues, man, go deal with your family. We don't care about work. Family comes first. Rita is an example and a model in my opinion, of exactly what a feminist means. And that title, I think, has gotten a bad rap in the modern era. A feminist is somebody who can do anything she wants to do. In Rita's case, that means put the family first and also be an amazing, dedicated professional. It's my absolute honor to bring up one of my best friends, an incredible woman, Rita Dunaway. Mark, you're not supposed to make someone cry right before they come on the stage. So I'm going to try to lighten things up a little bit as we get started here. I want to fill in a little bit more 
of the backstory of Robert. I'm making him really nervous right now, but I think it's important for you all to know this because it's something I really appreciate about him. When Mike Ferris brought me onto the staff, I didn't get a written job description. I didn't get any kind of job (laughs) description. It was more like, here you go, see what you can do to help, which was great. But when he brought me on staff, there were three attorneys on our staff. Of course, Mike Ferris himself, Mark, and Robert. And of course, Mike and Mark were out doing, they were the spokespeople for the organization. They were the ones telling everyone what it was all about, getting things going, getting the grassroots organized and involved, spreading the word. So that meant that Robert was the attorney who was in the office sort of handling all the ends of other stuff that were happening from you know, legal compliance issues, what I like to think of as the real lawyer work, but also handling all the legislative side of things too. He was really doing it all when I joined the staff. And so at one point, Robert and I had a discussion and I I don't remember who brought it up, but one of us said, you know, at some point we should probably just sort this out, like who's going to do what, rather than both of us trying to do a little bit of both sides of things, the lawyer things and the legislative things. And I don't remember, I think, Robert, you were the one who just said, you know, I've thought about this, Rita, I think you should take on the legislative side of things and I'll do the legal compliance issue. That is what happened, right? Okay, that's how I remember it. And what I remember is just being so relieved that that's what Robert chose. That went both really. ways, by the way. <laughs> and it's amazing that it went both ways because I think of the legal, the really hardcore legal stuff that Robert deals with day in and day out is hard. It's technical. It's, you have to be on top of your game all the time. And Robert is obviously smart as a whip, you know, that's a given. But the fact that Robert chose that, I think, says a lot about him. And Robert is someone whom I really admire. And the fact that he would take that on is amazing. So I like to tease Robert. And we have a little saying in our organization that I'm the fun side of legal. And he's 007. (laughs) Yeah. So I do want to interview Robert a little bit. I'm going to ask him some questions. And I have to start by saying there is no one in this world who's better to fill the shoes of Professor Rob Nadelson than Robert. Just, that's right. Just in terms of sheer intelligence, um, their thoroughness in researching and understanding the history and the law is unparalleled. So I can't think of anyone better to do this. And thank you for being willing to step in, Robert. I'll try to live up to that. I don't think I can, but I'll try. I know you will. Okay, so I'm going to start with this question. We know that an Article 5 convention is just one type of an interstate convention, which is a broader category. So I want you to talk to us about to what extent is America's history of other interstate conventions useful to understanding how an Article 5 convention, which we've never had yet, would actually work? So it's, it's tremendously helpful. Article 5 wasn't written in a vacuum. And I think so often people go to the Constitution, and at least in the context of Article 5, they expect it to be this manual of legislative procedure. And of course, that goes against exactly what the founders were trying to do with the Constitution, which is create a document that anyone in America could read and understand, and that reflected the overall vision of what America could be. So you know, th- this expectation that there's somehow going to be a manual procedure there is, you know, is silly and cuts against what all of us want for the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But more fundamentally, 
the reason they didn't spell things out in Article 5 as to what the convention procedures were is because there were so many Article 5, not Article 5, but interstate <coughs> conventions that had already taken place. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, as Professor Nadelson has pointed out, there were at least nine interstate conventions between 1776 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence and 1787 with the Constitutional Convention. So that's a 10-year, 11-year period in which they had nine conventions. So, you know, of course they knew how this procedure worked. It wasn't any shock. It wasn't any surprise to them. This was a very familiar process. They held conventions, during that period at least, more frequently than they held elections. And so the idea that it's somehow a, uh, you know, an unknown process or anything like that just flies in the face of the history and the research that Professor Nadelson has done. And Robert, we do have other um, terms or phrases used in the Constitution where it was just sort of taken for granted that everybody knew what it was, right? So that they didn't actually spell out all the details, sure. kind of like with the word convention in Article 5. Right, yeah, you could take, for example, think of it this way. How many of you, got, how many of you all believe that you're innocent until proven guilty in a criminal court? Good, because you are. You have that. That's a constitutional right that you have. You have the right to be innocent until proven guilty. Where does that, where is that in the Constitution? It's not there. It's nowhere in the text of the Constitution. We get that from the fifth and sixth, from well, the due process clause in the Constitution, then the fifth um, and sixth amendments to the not amendments, uh, yeah, amendments to the Constitution, yeah. and. Nowhere in there does it say that. What it says is that you have a right to a jury trial and you have a right to due process. And the reason we know what a jury trial looks like, the reason we know what due process looks like, is because there were thousands of jury trials that were held in the founding era. And so you can look back at the history and you can know that meant innocent until proven guilty. That meant you had to be convicted by a unanimous verdict. That meant you got the full protections of due process of law. And of course the same thing applies in the context of Article 5 itself. Right? You can look back at the history. Article 5 doesn't tell us. It doesn't lay out for us all the procedures because all of those procedures are there and discoverable if you just go back and read the historical yeah. text. So we don't need to look at Article 5 and see the word convention and then freak out because all of the specifics of the convention process aren't spelled out. And actually, I'll mention something else. So I, I was talking with Professor Nadelson about this actually just a few days ago, right, right before he was unable to make it to this event. And one thing he pointed out in our conversation was that a convention has exactly the same power to propose amendments that Congress does. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same power. And yet, nobody freaks out about the fact that Congress has the ability to propose amendments despite the fact that nobody trusts Congress. <laughs> like, Congress's approval rating is terrible. And, and yet, nobody's freaking out about that fact. But everybody, the moment we start talking about a convention, even though it has exactly the same power, which is the power to propose amendments, which have to be ratified before they become law anyway, mm -hmm. everybody suddenly freaks out when you throw the term convention in there. Right, so I have a couple more questions that I would like to ask Robert, and then we're going to go to addressing your questions. So I just wanna remind you, please write down your questions, and I think we're gonna get them up here to Mark. Are you <laughs> Mark's going to fill in and do that job for us because we do what needs to be done, right? Um, so write down your questions for Robert. What would you say, Robert, is the most common um, misconception that people have about the Article V convention process? I mean, it has to be a runaway convention. Mm -hmm. um, despite all the research that shows us that that's not going to happen, despite all the checks and balances on it, despite the fact that if a convention did run away, it would still have to have its proposals ratified by three quarters of the states, which just isn't gonna happen in the case of a runaway convention. That has to be the, the argument that's still used to this day. And I think a big part of that f comes out of the historical scholarship, which is, a number of leftist professors have gone out of their way to lambaste the adoption of our own constitution. They've gone out of their way to label the constitutional convention in 1787 as a runaway convention itself. And in, in many cases, that was out of an effort to justify judicial activism, right? Our founders bent the rules, so it's okay if judges bent the rules, was essentially the thought process and where that came from. Uh, and so because of that, they maligned our constitution, uh, falsely so. In fact, you can go read a 
Mike Ferris has written an excellent law review article that's published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy that goes through all of the things that occurred at the Constitutional Convention and lays out step by step how they complied with the existing law, how the delegates followed their instructions, and how there was in fact no runaway convention under any argument. So I'd encourage you all to check that out if that's something you're interested in. So I just want you to repeat this one point to make sure nobody missed it because Today, we hear objections all the time from organizations like the Eagle Forum, the John Birch Society, but you're saying they were not the original source of these um, claims that we're going to have a runaway convention? No, not at all. They're largely been, they, they basically taken up the, the leftist mantra that was actually used to defeat a balanced budget amendment back in the 1950s and 60s. And so it's, it's weird to hear the same talking points coming out of both the left and the right at the same time. And it's, it's frankly absurd for people who claim to believe in the validity of the Constitution to somehow believe in the validity of every part of the Constitution except for Article 5. I mean, either the founders got it right and they got it all right or they didn't. You can't, you can't say, oh, we like the entire document except for the one article we don't like. I mean, that's, that's exactly what activist judges do in you know, picking, picking which parts they like. Now, it seems to me that a lot of the fears that people have about an Article 5 convention stem really from one major question, and that is, when the commissioners go to the convention, do they just go and kind of act on their own and do whatever they want? Or are they really bound to doing only what their state legislatures tell them to do? Can you address yeah, that? Yeah, so, so this is clearly established in convention precedent, and it's just clearly established in the way our legal system is structured. When the states send commissioners to the convention, those commissioners are acting as agents of the state. That's what a commissioner means. A commissioner is somebody who's been given a commission, which is a delegation of authority from one entity that has the authority to another entity that's representing it. And people, people get weird when you start talking about agency relationships. They start thinking, oh, a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. Agency relationships are actually very, very simple. And I guarantee you all have experienced an agency relationship in the last 12 hours because you've interacted with the hotel staff here. Um, agency, the, the most basic agency relationship is between an employer and an employee, right? So you got a boss and you got an employee, right? If your boss tells you to do something and you don't do it as the employee, your boss can fire you and he can hire somebody else to replace you. So for example, completely random example here, I didn't okay. think this up in advance. It's okay to be random. If, yeah, no, it's, yeah. <laughs> if, if I were to come up here and instead of talking about Article 5 of the Constitution, I were to show up, borrow a tricorn hat and uh, give Patrick Henry's liberty or death speech, for example, from the podium here. <laughs> that was proposed by some, by the way. <laughs> If I were to go do that, then Mark would totally have the right to come up here, shut me down, and say, no, we're not doing that right now. So just an example of how an agency relationship can work. And it's the exact same thing with Article 5. The state legislatures are the boss. They're the delegating authority. They're the authority issuing the commission. If the state legislate, if the, if the commissioners to the convention don't follow the instructions that they're given, they can be fired by the state legislature and replaced by somebody who will. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We're going to go into some Q&A now, and while I wait for Mark to shuffle over there, I do have one from, thank you, from Michael Ellsbury, our Oregon legislative liaison. He wants to know, do any of our authorities believe that open calls done by 20 states for a convention of states would be combined with the calls for specific amendments or topics. For example, could open calls be combined with the 28 balanced budget amendment applications? So, so this is an interesting question under the law, and there's no direct on-point legal precedent. So the answer, as you know, is the case so often with legal things, and which drives Mark crazy, I know, is it depends, right? It's, it's, in, it's in a gray area, right? It's one of these lovely gray areas in the law that we don't actually know the answer to. Nadelson actually has a section in his Law of Article Five Treatise, which is the, the work that we published that basically summarizes his research on the procedures that are laid out in Article Five. You can buy it off Amazon, it's a little green book. Um, very helpful, I'd encourage you all to pick up a copy if you're interested in that. Yeah, we got one here in the front row, excellent. 
And uh, he actually has a section in there that, that discusses this exact <coughs> scenario. And the answer he reaches, the conclusion he reaches, is probably, as a matter of legal theory, you probably should be able to aggregate uh, unlimited convention calls with limited convention calls on a particular topic. But as a practical matter, that's never going to happen. And that's because many of these unlimited calls were passed hundreds of years ago. The legislatures that adopted them are no longer in power. And frankly, it's not in our interest for them to be counted towards it anyway, right? You've got to get to 34 states to have a convention. You've got to get 38 states, though, to ratify. And so if you can't get to that threshold to hold a convention in the first place, you're never going to get to that threshold to ratify anyway. So it's, it's an interesting question of legal theory. They probably should be um, aggregated together, but as a practical matter, practical politics, uh, probably not going to happen, and it's probably a good thing that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's one from Norman Bobo, Tennessee State Director of Research and Education. One frequent objection of opponents to the Article 5 convention is we don't know the rules of how a convention will operate. In response, at least four groups have proposed sets of rules. The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, the Assembly of State Legislatures, the 2017 meeting in Phoenix, and of course, the rules proposed by Ferris and Nadelson for the Convention of States project. Each of these sets of rules has strengths and weaknesses. Are you aware of any plans by any Article 5 group or anyone to compare and contrast the four sets of rules, discuss the pros and cons of specific rules, and create a definitive set of rules? So I'm not, I'm not aware of any effort underway to sort of compare and contrast those rules. Uh, the reality is the legislatures themselves are going to send their delegates with instructions as to the types of rules that they're going to want. Different states are going to have different ideas as to what those rules will look like. And so the states are going to have to negotiate this at least somewhat when we actually get to a convention. The one thing we can be pretty sure of, and, and in the case of all four of those sets of rules, they're at core very similar sets of rules. I believe it's, we're up to 74 of the 99 state legislative bodies. Uh, Nebraska's unicameral, that's why we don't have 100 state legislative bodies. Uh, but 74 out of the 99 state legislative bodies follow some version of Mason's Manual of Legislative Procedure. And so you can bet that that's going to serve as the backdrop, the, the groundwork for any rules that take place at a convention. And they've been used for hundreds of years in state legislatures, and they've been proven to be very effective. So it's going to be some variation on that. It's just there are going to be little debates about the nitty-gritty of uh, the individual details. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, this one is from Jackie Martin, our Arkansas State Director. How would you deal with the argument that you don't trust a convention because you don't trust state legislators? I mean, I think, I think the first thing I would just say to that is you don't have to trust state legislatures, right? The whole structure, the whole idea of checks and balances, according to James Madison, is to have ambition countering ambition. I mean, the, the idea is you want scumbag politicians at the state level checking scumbag politicians at the federal level. <laughs> And, and that's the genius of our founders, right? If, I mean, as, as Madison also said, if men were angels, no government would be needed among men. Our system isn't designed for perfect people. We wouldn't need a system if we did have perfect people. It's designed to give us a chance to fix our system by setting power against power, by giving the states an institutional incentive to pull back power from the federal government. And so that's, I think that works regardless of whether you've got angels in the state legislatures or whether you've got demons in the state legislature. And the reality is you've got human beings, so it's a mix of both. <laughs> okay, this one's from Matt Zale, a Pennsylvania district captain. How could the states in 1861 have succeeded to stave off the Civil War with a peace convention? Okay, so that's, that's a reference to the Washington Peace Conference or the Washington Conference Convention. It went by both names. So right before the Civil War, right, it was pretty obvious the country was in a very divided place and the country was going down a dark path. And that something needed to be done to try and address the issue of slavery, to try and address the division that was happening in the country between North and South. And so what happened is a number of states got together informally. They didn't call an actual <coughs> Article 5 convention, which in hindsight may have been a shame that they, they didn't do that. Um, but they got together in 1861 in Washington, D.C. 
and they discussed a number of proposals to try and bring the country back together. And they came out with a number of proposals that would have gradually abolished slavery, that would have resolved many of the issues that ultimately got resolved through the Civil War, but to do it peaceably. And unfortunately, because it wasn't an Article V convention, the state had, the, the, the convention had no authority to propose any amendments back to the states for ratification. So instead what it did is it drafted up a set of proposals, sent them back to Congress, and Congress predictably did absolutely nothing. And so, you know, it, it, we don't know. We would, obviously, it's speculation to say what might have happened had history turned out differently, but it's interesting to speculate that perhaps, you know, the Civil War could have been averted and we could have brought a peaceful end to slavery instead of having, having to have that terrible war. Thank you. This question is from Jake Wilson, a Hawaii district captain. Given that convention results in amendments, what are the strongest legal avenues that the opponents of the process would have to invalidate the results? I mean, invalidating, invalidating a constitutional amendment generally requires another constitutional amendment, right? So at one point in our history, we adopted prohibition. We prohibited the sale of alcoholic beverages, and then realizing that was an immediate mistake, we subsequently repealed it pretty quickly. Um, so that's, that's the, traditionally, that's the way you overturn an amendment. And historically, I know, I know some of our opponents certainly bring this up that, well, the, you know, the people don't follow the Constitution anyway, right? Like, why are they gonna, why are they gonna listen to amendments? And there are two important, two important things for us to, when we're thinking about our response to that. One, because the American people are gonna have to be behind any effort to get an amendment passed. There's a reason it takes 34 states to apply for a convention. There's a reason it takes 38 states to ratify any amendments, and that's to make sure that the overwhelming majority of Americans support the <coughs> proposals that come out of a convention. And those people are gonna be the ones who are gonna hold the courts accountable, who are gonna hold the politicians accountable to those amendments. So the very process itself creates the institutional checks that are necessary to enforce the amendments. You all are the institutional check that are going to enforce those amendments, and as we continue to grow, that check becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's what self-governance looks like. Um, the, second, the second piece of that is that historically amendments have been successful in overturning bad Supreme Court decisions. So going way back almost to the founding itself, we had Chisholm versus Georgia, which that, that case dealt with an in, a, a case that involved state sovereignty, so, or uh, sovereign immunity. So for those of you who, this gets technically into the weeds a little bit with, with law, but you can't sue a state, you can't sue a country without its permission. And what the states feared was that now that we had a new central federal government, that that federal government was going to allow people from other states to come in and sue that state and basically take their citizens' money and move it to other states by means of the federal government, which would have been a huge violation of state sovereignty. And it turned out the, the states were right about that because the Supreme Court in Chisholm versus Georgia actually gave them, gave other states, gave citizens in other states the power to do that, to basically raid the treasury of neighboring states. <laughs> Um, and then what happened? Well, we got the 11th Amendment, right? States passed an amendment that was clear violation of their sovereignty. They got together. We got an amendment that corrected it. Never been reversed. State sovereign immunity is still a thing. You still need the permission of the state, even if you're a citizen of another state, to go in and sue them. And we see that, we see that all over the place in terms of how amendments are. Uh, when you get the wherewithal to do that process, when you have the people behind an amendment, like what it takes to get an amendment passed, those amendments stay in force. They stay in effect, and the 11th Amendment is still good to this day. And I'm pretty sure I heard you say in there that constitutional amendments have been used in the past to overturn bad Supreme Court precedents. Mm -hmm. I bet there are some of us in this room who might think there would be good reasons to do that again. <laughs> the... <laughs> The author of this next question says, I have friends who say we need to leave the interpretation of the Constitution to the professionals. Is this true? Why or why not? So the answer to that is obviously no. I mean, this is the, this is the procedural document that we all have to live under. I mean, if you had to leave it to professionals, then the entire concept of consent of the governed goes out the window, right? You've just got to trust the beneficent legal class, I guess, to make all the right decisions for you. And uh, last time I checked, the legal profession wasn't doing too hot in public opinion <coughs> polls. But um, so, so no, I mean, I mean that just that goes fundamentally against our entire system of government. 
Now, is it true that there are some aspects of the Constitution that do get into the weeds, right? Like I, I was just talking about state sovereign immunity, right? That's something that you would need to, I imagine most of you would have to do a little bit of research on before you really understood how those pieces interacted, right? We talked about Fifth Amendment due process stuff, which concerns directly what lawyers do in a courtroom, in a courtroom setting. So sure, there are definitely parts of the Constitution that do get into the weeds and do, you know, there is a role for lawyers in interpreting that. But the Constitution itself was a document written for the American people with the consent of the American people. The people who ratified the Constitution were not a bunch of lawyers who you know, were super educated. They were ordinary American citizens who knew what they were adopting, who believed that this was the system of government they wanted to live under, and who still believe in that system of government to this day. Is there any precedent for non-legislators being selected as delegates to convention to conventions, could a citizen become a delegate? Sure, absolutely. There's, there's plenty of precedent for non-legislators becoming delegates to a convention. Now, I will say, in a lot of cases, legislators sort of have the inside track because it's the state legislatures who are appointing the delegates. So, you know, if you have that connection there already, then that makes it easier for you. But there are plenty of examples of citizens who ended up serving in conventions. Benjamin Franklin, great example huge American, huge influence in the process of adopting the Constitution. And uh, you know, he, was, he was a critical voice for the Constitutional Convention and critical in expressing support for the Constitution when it was proposed back to the states for ratification. So there is absolutely precedent for that. I think that's gonna be absolutely critical if the American people yeah. are going to buy into the convention process. Good point. Greg Hall, a grassroots coordinator from North Carolina, wants to know what books he should get. <laughs> we'll start with the law of Article 5, which is, <laughs> again, that's, that's a summary of just the research that Nadelson has done into the procedures and the processes of Article 5 of the Constitution. It's not a book, but I'd really also encourage everyone to read Mike Ferris's Harvard uh, Journal of Law and Public Policy article on why the Constitution was properly adopted, why the Constitutional Convention was not a runaway convention. It's called Unconventional Wisdom. If you just journal Harvard Journal of Law and Public, excuse me, Google, Harvard <laughs> Journal of Law and Public Policy and uh, Unconventional Wisdom, it'll come up. And I'd really encourage you. Those are the two for sure big ones. And of course, Mark Levin's Liberty Amendments. If you haven't read it, hopefully, hopefully everyone here has. If you haven't had a chance to read it, that lays a very practical foundation for what an Article 5 convention could look like, what many of the proposals could be adopted at a convention. I think those are the, those are the key starting points yeah, for good books I know. With the Law of Article 5 book by Professor Nadelson, I keep that on my desk, and I refer to it frequently. So it, it is really useful to have on hand as a reference. And one of the things I really appreciate about it is how organized the table of contents is. So if you're looking for a specific answer, you can go right through that table of contents and, and find it. Okay, our time is about up. Do we have time for another question or? Okay, quick question. Quick answer. What, what is the likelihood that Congress would come right behind us and undo or rewrite our amendments. That's from Dan Lachance in Arizona. I mean, nothing, because you gotta get three quarters of the states to ratify the amendment in the first place. So you'd have to have over half of the American people, over half the states suddenly change their mind in order to ratify the congressional proposal anyway. So, zero chance. Okay, thank you so much, Robert. Thanks for being NATO today. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.